Well, friends, this is camp meeting. Where are our camp meeting friends? Now, I want just the authentic ones, those who stayed in tents or on the ground or in cabins, not the RV hotel people, not the Crystal Cathedral. Keep your hands up. Where are the real campers? There you go. There we have it. You know, this has been coming on easy. This is my fourth August with you. I'm a camp meeting girl raised on the Oregon campgrounds. And so we've been gentle on you the last four, three years. We're full on camp meeting this August, no apologies. Thank you to Dr. Bob, all the musicians, Sandy Mikowski for making this place look a little more authentic. And for that Miss Carol Derry Bretch over there on the piano this morning. She's a church member, and we don't see her too often because of her health. Uh, her health has kept her away from us, but I told her first service, girl, you play the piano like that at camp meeting, and you get in a little bit of trouble because the early reports from early Advent tent meetings were that there was a little too much of the Holy Spirit. Uh, oh, yeah, it was written up this way, freewheeling worship in the music at camp meeting. We're rolling through some pictures on the back here of uh, different tent meetings. Some may look familiar to you. The campground I grew up on, which we visited just a couple of weeks ago, one of the old Chautauqua campgrounds known in the United States that were so popular in the 19th century. In 1929, the Oregon Conference purchased the Oregon campground, still there in Gladstone, the third largest permanent park, by the way, in the United States, and where real camp meetings still happens. While the, the large plaza tent is still up, the cabins and the, the uh, sleeping tents are all gone. But you're about to see a picture of cabins uh, very much like what I grew up in. These are cabins from the original Gladstone era. And uh, my grandmother and grandfather lived in the third cabin built on that campgrounds, and it just felt like home. Now, you can go all the way to Oregon and run into Calamasa people. The Beckers, Duncan and Christina Henry, um, who else? They're, oh, John and Ray Peterson. You can go all the way to Oregon and still have, yeah, and Mark and Lisa McMillan and Zupans. And can you believe you can be all that way from home and still find us? Now, my mother, when I arrived in camp meeting on, on uh, Monday, you know, the meetings don't start till Tuesday night, but these people, these are hardcore campers. They're planning weeks in advance. There's a certain day the RV goes out, and a certain day all of these things happen. And when I joined Mom on Monday night, she said, you got to come quick over to the main pavilion, see where I'm sitting. You know, 30, 40, 50. My mother was raised, by the way, on these campgrounds. She went to the little school on Oatfield Road on the campground, so this is her home. I said, Mom, I've been to the pavilion. I've spent 30 summers in that pavilion. I know what it looks like. No, you got to come see where I'm sitting. The, the place seats 2,000 people. I think you're going to be okay. You've got to come. You just have to know the system. She told me. You have to know the system. Come. So we take her little cane, and we do the walk from her RV just a short distance over to the pavilion, and she shows me where her seat is, and Brent will show you what I saw. See those lawn chairs? Now I never have to worry about getting a seat. I have my own seat. Fourth, fourth row back, four lawn chairs in, the platform's just right there. I can see it all, I can hear it all. I never have to get here early. I got a seat every time. You just have to know the system. 
And boy, if you want to see campers get angry, mess with their seats. <laughs> I heard that growing up. Somebody move my blanket, somebody move my chairs. Now I was remembering a time, I told mom, there was a time, a story I heard you tell when we were trying to get into a cabin in the early years. Oh yeah, yeah, she wanted a cabin up on a certain hill by the primary building. Only conference officials were allowed there. Important people were allowed there. Speakers who came in from out of town and general conference people and, you know, the regular campers couldn't live in that set of cabins. But my mother went to the location booth because you just got to know the system. She used to call these the location guys. She went to the location guy one year. This would be before, probably in the early 60s. She said, if I brought you a lemon meringue pie, could I have a cabin on that little hill right by the bathrooms? Location guy shrugged his shoulders. The next day, my mother came with a lemon meringue pie. And for more than 30 years, they had a cabin on a hill. Because you just have to know the system. Now, we do keep that phrase in mind this month. Remnant, church, just got to know the system. Camp meeting is for good music and good speakers, and four of them coming up the rest of this month. Please be present. It's for socializing and friendship on the lawn every week. There will be food for you. At the end of the month, a social opportunity. Camp meeting is mostly to open our Bibles and for spiritual renewal. And I pray that for us as a congregation this month. Genesis chapter 6, open with me this morning. Would you a story, one of the oldest stories in the Bible, an event in the lives of God's people of epic proportion, one of the most significant events in all of the Bible. It takes more than two chapters to tell the story. I'll just read a selected verses this morning to you. Genesis 6, beginning with verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Can you imagine God having to say those words? I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 17, here's God's plan. I'm going to bring a flood, flood waters to the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female. Keep them alive with you. So God gives Noah instructions on how to build this ark, and indeed Noah does as God says, and gathers the animals, and gathers his family, and goes inside. Genesis chapter 7 now, beginning verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that very day, 
The springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heaven were open, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17, for 40 days and 40 nights, the flood kept coming on the earth, and listen to how many times and how many ways the same thing is said again and again. The flood kept coming on the earth as the waters increased. They lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose, covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, the entire human race, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Human beings and animals and creatures that moved along the ground and the birds wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. And you know, as the story goes, the flood waters receded, and finally the ark sat on dry ground. And Noah and his family and the creatures came out of the ark, and God had this conversation with those humans. Genesis 9, verse 8. God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will I, all life destroyed, be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to see. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. Whether it's a cloudy day or not, I will look at the rainbow, God goes on to say, and I will remember the covenant I made with you. Never, never, never again will you and all that has life be destroyed by a flood. Genesis 7:23, however, says one thing existed, something existed from this conversation. Genesis 7:23, every living thing, we've already read this, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Human beings and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And that is a remnant. The remaining ones, the left ones, the left over, some say, the kept ones, those remaining, first use of this word remnant in the Old Testament, Noah and his family. Usually it's a small group of people in the Bible, the remnant group. Now, I don't know if you've if you're newer to Adventism, you might not have heard this word before. I still think one of the best ways to understand the word remnant is with a bolt of fabric. And those of you who sew and go to the material shops, you understand that when you unroll the bolt of fabric and you cut a more and you cut away a little more and you take away a little more, at the very end you come, back, you come down to what? The, the remnant, the remainder. In fact, as a child growing up in the church, I only ever heard the word remnant in two locations. The remnant was at the fabric store on the remnant table. We bought remnants to make quilts and things, and the remnant 
was at church where I grew up in Vancouver, Washington. The remnant met in a building. The remaining ones, the remnant, the ones left behind. The story between God and God's people is just beginning here now at the beginning of the Bible. And already by verse 7, we read, by chapter 7 of Genesis, we read there's a remaining group, which also means that there are a lot missing now. Many are gone. From where we stand today, looking back at the story in Genesis 7, we might imagine that those who get off the ark and look around their washed world would take inventory of what's happened. They would see that they are the only ones left. They would understand their new reality that all the others are gone. They would see they've just been given the promise of a lifetime. Lucky they've got one. And wouldn't you think, if you'd lived through that, you might be on good behavior for a little while. Three verses. Three verses until there's a relationship problem between Noah and his sons, and Noah curses his son, and his grandson curses them right out of the family. And that which God was hoping to destroy, evil in the hearts of humans, which means humans who won't look to God, but humans who are absorbed with everything else in the world, that which God was hoping to destroy is now present again in the ones remaining in the ones remaining. This is how one of the first families in scripture put their remnant opportunity to business, to, to, to use. They had an opportunity in front of them. And here goes the cycle in scripture. God always looking for a remnant who will be faithful. And over and over again, it seems God is disappointed. One of the last times in the Bible we'll see the word remnant or hear the remnant conversation is in Revelation 12. Those of us who've grown up in this church know before we even read the passage how precious this text is to us. Revelation 12:17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, the remnant, the ones remaining, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now here at the end of the first century from John's experience and imagination, John the Revelator already part of a remnant, a, a remaining group of persecuted Christians, already he can imagine a future time, another remnant that will be coming, those remaining ones who will be loyal and faithful, those who will be at the end of the God story, the last generation, the last episodes in God's conversation in Scripture. John can imagine that. Somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, the estimates are that more than 500 times remnant, remnant idea, remnant people are mentioned. This is why we're talking about it this month. More than 500 times the idea comes up again about a remaining group. And the people who remain, they, they, they come through chaos and calamity, through disease and war from, war from within, war from without. They survive captivity. They survive being released. All of this, the remnant, endure for a purpose. For a purpose. That final time we read about the remnant in Revelation 12, that is supposed to be a faithful remnant at the very end of time. Those whose hearts are turned towards God. And this is where Adventist Christians have identified themselves. 
through all these remnant groups down through scripture and time. Next week when Dr. Guy is here, he will pick up on this conversation. How have Adventist Christians got to this position where we have identified ourselves in this long tradition and now we self-identify ourselves in Revelation 12 as, as that last remaining faithful remnant with our faces turned towards God with a special mission and a message longing for what the Newfelds sang about to find a, a heaven with a door open wide. In preparation for next week and the following weeks, I invite you to spend time in your Bible. Today, this week, go back and read remnant stories in the Bible. Read again, Noah, from start to finish. Pick up the Lot story in Genesis 18 and 19 where there's a little group remaining. Read about Elijah, 1 Kings 19, on Mount Carmel where they're able to find 7,000 men who will be faithful to the one Yahweh God. And maybe while we're reading those stories, it would be fair to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and read about a couple, the very beginning in the garden, who remain even on the outside of the garden because they haven't been able to have their face and their heart turned towards God either. From the very beginning of the God story with humans, it's always been about a relationship. God longing for a people who want to know God and who will make God known in the world. That's what the remnant do. That's who the remnant are. And God gets group after group after group who are about their own business. This can be a delicate conversation, a troubling conversation. When we were looking for a visual to represent the month, you see in your bulletin, a bulletin insert there that Henrik Jorteg put together. It's also represented on posters around campus here and down the hill. The challenge Henrik and I moved through together is actually a good example of how tricky the remnant conversation can be. I said to Henrik, who was gracious enough to give us his time. Henrik, we need a visual that will sort of look contemporary because we're leaning into new conversation here, so we don't want an old-fashioned camp meeting look. Some, something contemporary, and he gives me these little techno computer guys. You know, three of them are kind of gray, and the one in the middle is bright orange. You can't see all the color there, but the guy in the middle has his arms flung up in the hair. The little Pentecostal, I told him right away, that's a little Pentecostal. But a little triumphal, the guy's a little, he just looks all alone. You know, it's gonna, the remnant's probably more than that, Henrik. It's a, and they, they just look too techy. It, it doesn't look relationship enough. So I got back the next image from Henrik, who was willing to keep working. Well, there's more, and these look a little more the shape of human or stick people. But that red guy makes me nervous. Red is not a good color. Red's kind of danger, danger, and he's got his arm up. Choose me, choose me. I said to Henrik, it looks a little exclusive, and the rest of them are just kind of fading off into the back. You know, like, like they're out of this. Yeah, the guy can't look too special. You can't make the rest of those. Those are supposed to be God's people, too. You can't make them look so unaccepted. And, you know, when you don't know what else to do, you do what Henrik did, and this was the next version. He said, fine, it's goldfish then. Look, they're swimming two different directions. No one looks more special than the other. They all look alike. Are we happy now? And between the two of us, we decided, how about a church? 
maybe we should just go for a church somewhere, a church look. And Henrik came up with what you've seen in your bulletin, and they're on the screen. Boy, that represents the challenge of talking about the conversation. We are at the core of my interest and my concern as one of your pastors and as a a fellow church member, not only here, but in the worldwide Adventist church. We are a group of believers who were called originally in 1943 to come out of churches, come out of fallen Babylon was the message. We came out and and came together around a couple of ideas about God and how God interacted with humans, and we were warned, don't form a new church, don't organize yourself. The exact line is, when a church is organized, it's man's invention and it immediately becomes Babylon the moment it's organized. That was a warning to us as Millerite believers. Now here we are, a fully organized institutional denomination, huge worldwide, huge remnant church. We describe ourselves as a true church, the true church, the church with full truth, not partial truth. The truth as we have been given it. It's an interesting journey we are on as Adventist Christians. You see how much care we must operate with now. Remnant business. What should it look like now in the 21st century? What should it look like after living through 160 years of end times, end times still, keeping the commandments of God still, having the testimony of Jesus still, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth still, 160 years later, here we are, the remnant church, we say. I have six goals for this conversation. Let me share those with you. The reason I bring this topic to our attention at this time in our life as a church, here are my six goals. First, that we would understand the remnant conversation is broader than Adventists and Catholics. Could we get past that? That's my first goal. We ought to understand also, secondly, that the conversation is broader than those who keep the Ten Commandments and believe Ellen White is inspired and those who don't. That somehow at the end of time there will be two groups, the Sabbath commandment keeping people and the others. And I'm suggesting the conversation is bigger than that. It is so much bigger than that. My second goal is that we would acknowledge the conversation is broader than the Sabbath keepers and the non-Sabbath keepers. As I took in some of the meetings at Camp Meeting a couple of weeks ago myself, I was... In the end, sad to hear a story told. And somehow the conclusion of the story and the punchline of the story is that Adventists are the ones, the only ones who keep all ten commandments. And the whole tent erupted in applause. And I said to Kirby, I think I have to leave right now. Was that what keeping the ten commandments is about? So we could stand up and say, nah, nah, nah. It was sad for me. Conversation is bigger. The third goal I have is that we would advance the remnant conversation based upon what we stand for, not what we stand against. So it's time in the world that people know what Adventist Christians are for in the world. What is it about God that is such good news? Why don't we just stand up and shout that? 
rather than being about the remnant who's always against everything. That is my third goal. My fourth goal, that we would be more committed, more passionate about whatever it is then that the remnant is to be about. If it matters, it ought to really matter. For me, uh, this is for me as much as for you. If I belong to this remnant church, it ought to really matter. Why? And that which matters most should be elevated, and that which doesn't could just be left by the wayside. Oh, that it would matter more to me and to you, and that we would become more committed about this, this experience of being remnant. My fifth goal is that we would find something new in the conversation. The truth is an advancing truth. The truth is a present truth. The truth is progressive. Somehow these are now negative and buzzwords in some part of the country. That there's something wrong with the truth being progressive and advancing in present day. If you are Adventist, to be authentically Adventist means the truth is always on the move. There's always more up ahead, not because the truth changes, but because we change. Our perception changes. We don't get it all the first time. Humans' perception of truth. God is long-suffering with us. The truth is always advancing and moving. You know, my mother, my sweet mother, came to every one of my presentations while we were up north. It was pretty difficult for her at 7 a.m., by the way, for a lot of those meetings. Every time I came down off the platform, she did what you would expect all parents to do, unashamedly, unapologetically. My mother is totally, totally uncritical, totally sold out. I would come down from the platform, totally unobjective, and she would grab my little face and say, you did such a good job. And I would grab her little chin and say, Mother, I could say, blah, blah, blah. And you would say, you said it so well. <laughs> yes, I would, she said. But then, I think seven out of eight times, my mother said to me, often with a tear coming down her face, why could we not have heard this 30 years ago? Why could I have I not known this about God 30 years ago? Why couldn't someone just open the Bible to me and say what you just said? When you have the Bible open, it's God's invitation. Come meet me for a while. Why didn't we hear it this way 30 years ago? Do you know what a difference it would have made in my life, my mother said. I would have lived differently. And then... She says, but 30 years ago, I probably couldn't have heard it. 30 years ago, I might not have been listening. And it seems in the church that we have to go through a few generations of beating one another up before we understand the remnant's not called to beat one another up. We have to go through a few generations of even worshiping doctrine before we understand that the remnant's not called to worship doctrine. We worship God. We have to go through a few years of majoring in very minor things to the result of excluding people from our fellowship and kicking them out before we realize, oh, those minor things were not major all along. 
we have to go through this. Truth is slowly revealed to humans, and here we are. The truth is an advancing truth. It's a progressive truth. It's a present-day truth. Never, never be ashamed of that. That is to be authentically Adventist. So my challenge is that we find something new this month. It would never make sense to early Adventists to come under a tent, to bring their Bible, to open it, and to celebrate what God taught them last year, to repeat it, to celebrate it, and to go home. It would never make any sense to them. They would have their Bible open saying, now what new thing could I learn this year? So for us, Open your Bible. Bring a notepad. We have four exceptionally trained people who are going to teach us the next four weeks. Bring something to write with. Buy just one book this month on Adventist Remnant and make it a good one. There's some out there that are not so good right now. Make it a good one. Buy anything by George Knight. Searching for an identity is a good place to start. One book. Go to the Heritage Room. You are just ten minutes from one of very few heritage rooms in the denomination. Spend two hours. It's, it's free. Just ask the worker there, bring me an old file full of newspaper clippings from the early years. Catch a flavor of what they were talking about at the early camp meetings. Commit to learning something this month. And my sixth goal for this conversation, this five-week conversation, is that we understand and we remind ourselves often that remnant making is God's business. You can keep the commandments all day and have the testimony of Jesus. And we can do it for 160 years and that does not make us a remnant. Zephaniah 3 says it so beautifully. Zephaniah 3.12, another one of the remnant passages in Scripture but I will leave within you the meek and the humble, those who trust in the name of the Lord. I will leave with... Who makes the remnant? God makes the remnant. We don't make the remnant. God says, I will leave within you. you I will make you the remaining ones. You couldn't possibly make a remnant out of yourself because remnant work, remnant business is God's business. You just got to know the system? No. You just have to desire to know God. And God will make us a remnant. Amen. To the one God who is capable of making a people whose primary task is to behold him. To that God be glory and honor and power forever and ever. Dismiss us, God, your people. Oh, that we would be content with our remnant task of beholding you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray.